I, <clears throat> I used to think earlier that, uh, oh, I'm never going to be one of those people that travels around and leads residential retreats. I mean, we've been doing residential retreats in the Minneapolis area for a long time. But uh, partly it's like a good thing for the Comgon organization for me to get out of town because it matures as an organization when I'm not there. <laughs> Some of you know this. And uh, the founder syndrome of nonprofits. But uh, But part of it is I really like being in the retreat setting. It is whether I'll take it any way I can get it, being on retreat or leading a retreat, it's really sacred ground to be here together. That doesn't mean it's easy and a lot like I mentioned, a lot of you are longtime practitioners, you know you've been on a lot of retreats. It's like really hard and good at the same time. Not always really hard, but probably for in moments hard, you know being on retreat. And one of the ways that uh, in our early Buddhist lineage, sometimes called Theravada Buddhism or insight meditation, Vipassana meditation tradition here in the West, I'm liking more and more early Buddhism in the sense of connecting with this person, not so much what generations of people had did with the idea of the Buddha, you know, because of our human minds, we tend to want to be special, and so we want the things we love to be special, and Buddhism got institutionalized in many different ways. It's still, we could, and in a way are, institutionalizing this way, but part of what we're trying to do is keep stripping it down to like, there was a human being who really understood his mind and had the personality attributes to be able to articulate what happened in a way that some 2,500 years later, that articulation is still quite useful for us. And that's kind of amazing. That's, I mean, it's amazing that humans can use awareness and in a sense turn it back on the mind itself. That's amazing that we can train our mind to do that, to get interested in the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart. And then what that, what unfolds from that interest, that practice, and then to be able to put it to language in a way that inspires other people to do it in different cultures and different times. That's impressive that these teachings are still relevant this many years later. And so one of the things folks do at the beginning of these retreats is we do this one uh, ceremony or ritual that, you know, generally we've teased out a lot of the kind of form, Asian form. But one thing that happened regardless of where the Buddhist teachings went, even regardless of the school or lineage, is they do this recitation of the refuges and the precepts. And it's really because it, it's very grounding, connects us to the lineage of other folks before us doing their practice and their busy lives, just like we have busy lives and having some insight and some fruit of their practice and sharing it, passing it along. Um, and part of it is just, it's like really useful as a community to come to this agreement. So I just want to say um, what that is, and then we'll do it. It just takes about seven minutes, and 
you didn't get a chant book, you might want to, maybe just a couple volunteers could pass out and you could just raise your hands um, if you didn't get a book. Anybody not have a book? So just a few. Yeah, thanks. And so the refuges are basically a different version of what I said during the guided meditation this morning. Right? So the ritual is Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. So three words, Buddha, you know. It's not a person. It means it's really pointing to awakeness, right? So this capacity in our heart to be awake. So we take refuge in that capacity, in that potential to really connect in an undefended way. And what are we connecting with? Well, that's the second one, Dhamma, right? So Dhamma, or more commonly heard in the West as Dharma, right? that's a word that means the way it is. But because we think we already know the way it is, it's kind of good to use a different word, not an English word. Because, oh yeah, Holy Wisdom Monastery, this is the way it is. You know, or March, this is the way it is. But the way it is is the immediacy of what I was saying earlier, something being known as a natural process. It's really the essence of our subjective experiencing. But the most important thing about Dhamma is to have some humility. Because it's really hard to connect because we've got a habit of being arrogantly sure I know what's happening to me right now. I know what this is. So we're in the abstraction of our thought about the present moment. But we're not aware that it's just a thought. Oh, I'm leading another retreat. right? So that's a thought. It's a very convincing thought. But that's not my subjective experience of seeing and hearing and the movement of emotion and the heat in the body. That's getting a little closer to Dhamma or Dharma. So Buddha knows Dharma. Buddha knows how to be intimate with Dhamma. You see, so it's really code for our practice. And when Buddha is intimate with Dharma, we get Sangha. That's the third refuge. Sangha is enlightened action, for lack of a better phrase. But like the freedom of how to engage, how to show up, how not to hold back in our lives. And all the messy, confusing, ambiguous moments of our life, how to be creative, how to be kind, how to be skillful. That's what Sangha means. A lot of times we use that word like the Madison Insight Sangha, you know, as a word for community, for spiritual community. And it's okay to use it that way. But it's really pointing when a human being is in a moment of Buddha knowing Dhamma, so it isn't Mark here or Julie here, it's just that heart being intimate with the way that it is, then who that person is in that moment, or maybe if they're, if we're all lucky for a couple moments, they're really Sangha. Because Buddha is knowing Dhamma, because the heart is being intimate with the way it is, then their action is coming out of that intimacy. And it's that person, what they say, do, or don't say, don't do, it's going to be beautiful. Well, when we sense it, we'll sense how appropriate that person is, their actions are in that moment. That's what we mean by Sangha. We've all been Sangha in moments, right? When we've been just there in our life, undefended, clear, intimate, really connecting, 
not trying to prove anything, not trying to be Sangha, for example, right? Right? We probably evolved, hopefully you can even remember some of those moments that were really beautiful. Sometimes, you know, in more conventional language, we say being in the flow. Or even more paradoxically, not being in the way. Not getting in my own way. Right? Fear, greed, not getting in the way. That's another way of understanding Sangha. So we're going to take refuge in that in a traditional way, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. And then we're going to do the five precepts. This is a lot around safety. Undertaking the training to refrain from harming and killing. Right? The killing part is relatively easy. But, you know, we throw people out of our hearts all the time. (laughs) It's kind of killing, you know. But I usually substitute the word killing with harming. Undertaking really deeply valuing non-harming, even though I don't think there's a way to live without causing harm. But we can deeply value it, take it as a training to not harm. The second is undertaking the training not to take what hasn't been given. So it's like that's part of why we feel safe here, is because there's some sense, and especially having taken this refu- or this precept together, like we're, we're really going to only take what's been given to us. And of course, there's no end to reflecting on this in terms of how we participate in the wider wor- world, where we shop, what we buy, and just cycles of oppression that exist in our society that we tend not to be so attuned to. You know, there could be great injustices going on, but we're not that interested in how we might in very subtle ways be complicit with how other beings are suffering. And the third is undertaking the training to refrain from, in retreat settings, usually to refrain from sexual activity. But generally, out in the world, when we're not on retreat, to refrain from sexual misconduct. And the Buddha is just highlighting Hey folks, this is a place where a lot of suffering happens. Pay attention. You know, being sexual beings, even those of us who are getting up there in years, we're still, we got sexual conditioning, sexual energies, and it's easy to cause harm to ourselves and others. So on retreat, we don't flirt, right? We'll still have attractions because we're a sexual being probably, but But we're not acting on it, we're not expressing that, because we're giving everyone their own space, and we're trying, as best we can, not to complicate our space together with sexual energy. So we do our best to keep that, like, oh yeah, we want it to move, we don't want to practice repression, but we're not bringing it out into the community. That's that third training. The fourth is undertaking the training to refrain from unskillful speech, And that makes sense. That's why we use noble silence. It keeps us out of a lot of trouble, (laughs) you know. Because if we're sitting, Tony and I were sitting across from each other at lunch, I'd say, where did you grow up? And and I'd start saying things, and he'd start saying things, and it wouldn't be exactly right. Or, you know, maybe there would be a little bit of trying to impress him, or a little bit of... But then, then that disturbs my heart, you know. So, it's... it. Initially, it feels a little awkward to be together in noble silence, but you'll see it's really sweet because you get the value of being in community, which is so protecting and supporting, and the value of 
not putting her foot in her mouth. <laughs> I mean, some of you, I'm sure, are really quite skillful. But there's a lot of us who aren't, and we find it quite protecting not to have to talk much. Now, we'll have our small groups, and we'll chat there, and you might have to connect with Julie or me about some of the details, and that's okay. But generally speaking, and then those of you who are going home, the majority of you go home at the end of the day, then you just have to, in your own heart, resolve what makes sense. And if you haven't already talked to the people you live with, then when you come home tonight, if they're there, they just sort of explain so they don't think it's weird how you're going to handle the next couple of days. You know, it's totally, you know, if your sweetie's at home, your lover's at home, partner, whatever, it's totally okay to give them a hug when you come in, you know, bite their earlobe, tell them you love them, and then go on your way, right? So don't, don't feel like what you do here and how we relate to each other here where we're really giving each other space. We're, you know, even on purpose, like here, it's okay to kind of connect, look at someone's eyes. But once we're out in the space of the retreat, throughout outside walking, you know, you know that person's there. You can have a very friendly relationship, but you don't have to look at them in their eyes. You, it's kind of a gift. Just think of it like a little simple gift. Honey, you get your space, and thanks for giving me my space. We don't have to do the social dance of interacting with each other, and it's so relieving. But at home, that may not make sense. If your partner practices, it might make sense. But if they don't practice, then just have a little interaction. Just let it be sweet for, you know, whatever, a few seconds. I had a great day. I think I'll keep quiet for the rest of the evening. Really nice to see you, you know. And then, you know, do whatever you're going to do. Take your bath. Take care of business. Have another sit at home. But things you don't have to do, like look at the mail, check your email, and things like that, then don't, if you don't have to do them, then don't do them. Just because you're out of the retreat container, bring the retreat container into your home in a way that isn't weird for the people you live with. Right? Don't train them to think Buddhism is weird. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> so, but, but, but protect yourself in a way that makes sense in the, in your personal settings at home. You know, especially if you have young kids. That will, you know, don't try to explain to them what you're doing. Just be your practice with them. That's a better way if you have young children. And Julie, were we going to use the basket for cell phones? But yeah, so if you don't, like if your cell phone is going to tempt you, if it's a temptress phone, then you can leave it there and Julie will guard it with your life. And she's got this special place where phones do their own retreat. <laughs> and they really appreciate it. But make sure you shut it all the way down so it doesn't talk to Julie in the middle of the night. <laughs> and you can just leave it in this basket. Maybe I'll leave it up here. And then Julie will collect them. And if you, when, if you need it back, if there's an emergency, just see Julie. Otherwise, she'll bring them down on Sunday morning for people to collect. Good. And so there's one more um, uh, precept. The fifth one is undertaking the training to refrain from drugs and alcohol. Basically, the whole point is the stability of mind, the relaxed, alert presence, and sustaining that present moment awareness. So why would we, you know, weigh it down with 
the effects of drugs and alcohol. Of course, just use caffeine how you normally use it. This is not the time necessarily to go cold turkey and stop using caffeine. But don't use more caffeine than you normally use, about what you normally use. And then, of course, no recreational drugs and alcohol, but medications as you normally take them. So let's do this, and then we'll do some walking practice. So the chant book and the refuges and precepts are on page... 128 and 129. <clears throat> and I'll just walk us through it. I'm assuming most of you have done this before. Some of you have never done this before, and you're going to wonder, why are we doing this in the Pali language? Well, that's just the way it's been done. Regardless of what country or what part of the world Buddhism, these teachings have gone, they just kept doing it in this language that was spoken around the time of the Buddha. It's in the language that the teachings were recorded in, similar to Sanskrit, Pali. So we'll do it in the Pali language. And you'll pick it up as best you can, but don't get tight. Just relax with it and enjoy it. So the first thing we do three times, we just honor our teacher, this person, the Buddha. Then we do each of the three refuges three times. So when you see in the middle of page 128, do that just means for the second time. And then at the very bottom, tatiampi just means for the third time. Right? That's because the refuges, it's really our way, our path. Buddha, knowing Dhamma, expressing that skillful action in the world, engaged action, beautiful action in the world, Sangha, right? So we say it three times, and then we'll do the five precepts, and we'll do it both in Pali, and we'll read the English together. Okay? So let's do that together. Some people like to have their hands together. You don't have to do this, but it's kind of a gesture of gratitude. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang saranang gachami, Dhammang saranang gachami, Sangang saranang gachami, Dutiampi Buddhang saranang gachami, Dutiampi Dhammang saranang gachami, Dutiampi Sangang Saranang Gachami Tatiampi Buddhang Saranang Gachami Tatiampi Dhammang Saranang Gachami Tatiampi Sangang Gachami And now the five precepts in the middle of 129. Panati pata where amani sika padang samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. Adinadana where amani sika padang samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. 
Kame sumichachara where amini sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. Musawada where amini sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from lying. Sura Maria Majapamaratana where Amani Sikapadang Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from consuming intoxicating drink drugs which lead to carelessness. So may this wise and wholesome conduct lead to the full fruit of liberation for all of us. So that's the refuges and precepts. We've sort of set the container now, sort of the protection, and we'll do some walking practice. So the schedule is walking until about 11.10. As Julie mentioned, someone will ring the bell about five or five to seven minutes before that so that don't need to stop you walking immediately, especially if you're pretty close, but just know that that's a sign of you know, the next sitting period will be coming relatively soon. And uh, because I did guided meditation, I'll just do a little guided meditation at that next sitting period at the very beginning. Now for walking practice, it's really the same. And this is our sitting practice. It's just that the concrete sensations of lifting and placing your foot will naturally be a predominant thing for awareness to notice. So we're not controlling what the mind knows, we're just allowing the heart or the mind to know what it knows. So when you're walking, when you're stopping, when you're turning around, a lot of people tend to walk in a lane, right? So maybe 30 feet or something, 20 feet. And so you get to the end, you stop, you turn around, you might pause, and then you walk. And you walk at a pace that supports the continuity of present moment awareness. And if the mind gets lost in thought and then the mind knows that it's lost in thought, then you might just stop for a moment, wherever you are in your walking lane, and just notice, oh yeah, thinking. Thinking is being known, right? And the basic instruction, right, If you don't need to check in about the safety all the time, only when you get that alarm, like, I'm not feeling safe, then reflect on how to be safe. But mostly you're at that middle instruction, okay, relax, and alertness. What does that look like? How to be both relaxed and interested. And so when we're walking, a lot of what we're interested in is just the physicality of the walking process itself. And then when something arises in the moment that's more predominant, than the lifting and placing the physicality of the walking, then let that be the object of awareness. Oh, this is what's being known. This experience is being known. Can the heart be relaxed, open, soft? Can the heart be interested, intimate? Letting whatever that is in the moment reveal itself or express itself, this experience. And maybe once during the day, you want to be outside more for some of you, but you know, at least once maybe a more normal pace walking 
it can be quite nice. And it's just good, um, it's good training to see if you can sustain awareness, present moment awareness, even when you don't have the punctuation of coming to the end of your walking lane and turning around. I mean, that's why nuns and monks in the Buddhist tradition have used walking lanes, because they're very honest about how easy it is for the mind to get lost in thought. And coming to the end of the walking lane, sort of, oh yeah, I've been lost in thought. Because by the time you, you stop, you realize, oh yeah, I'm doing walking meditation. And you come back to earth, into the body. Oh yeah, there's a body here. There's a present moment here. It's like this. This is being known. Right? And then you're back in your practice. But when you're walking like around one of the nice trails here, you won't have that punctuation. So you have to inspire yourself to punctuate your practice. So just see how you, how you might do that. And then uh, Julie put up some handouts that I brought um, on one of the bulletin boards out there. Gail Fransdahl is a very respected teacher on the West Coast, and he has a simple three-page, I think it is, description for walking meditation. So for those of you who are newer to walking meditation, maybe now, but maybe later in the retreat, just, you know, like after lunch, you might want to read through the walking meditation instructions, and it just give you, gives you more background and more ways to use that time when you're doing walking meditation. Because there are many different riffs, different styles of how you do walking. You'll see some people walking very slowly, and you go, oh my God, that's so weird. You know, or you see other people walking quickly. I mean, it really depends on what supports the continuity of present moment awareness. So don't do what you like to do. Do what you find actually supports the continuity of present moment awareness, non-distraction. Because that's what we're doing. We're feeling safe. We're bringing the heart into balance, relaxed and alert, present, right? And we're bringing in some of the new information. Is this just a natural process unfolding constantly in motion? Or is it me and my life and me doing my life? What's a skillful way of framing the present moment? That's that last piece of wisdom. Any questions? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.